I'm often amused by people who think that because they went to elementary school, they're prepared to tell teachers how to do their jobs. The confidence of what seemed to work for us as individuals fuels a lot of stress for teachers. I think the same is true of parenting. Nothing saps the confidence of the uninitiated quite like the reality of actually becoming a parent. Today's guest, however, tells parents to cut themselves some slack. She's KJ Delantonia this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to a Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Alongside me is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, artists, and more, to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the United States today. To help us this week, we're joined by K.J. Delantonia, former New York Times reporter, editor, and blogger, who is the author of How to Be a Happier Parent, raising a family, having a life, and loving almost every minute. KJ, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It so, was great. So we want to talk about your book, but you know, one of the things that always strikes me is that um, we're all experts in childhood because we were children once. Yes, right? and we're experts in parenting because we probably had them. And, and teaching because <laughs> we went to school. It's like, this uh -huh. is like a universal constant, right? Yeah. So, but my question for you, though, is you, know, you write about childhood. How did your own childhood sort of inform your, your experience as a writer now? That is a, that's a great question. Um, my childhood was pretty different than the parenthood that I offer my kids. I was an only child with two doting uh, parents, but who did not in any way, shape, or form wrap their lives around me. I spent a lot of my childhood um, wandering around behind the net at indoor tennis facilities, <laughs> picking up balls because, uh, you know, they, they didn't bother to find me something fun to do while they did their things. And in some ways, that's, uh, that's a lesson that I pulled from when I wrote How to Be a Happier Parent because I totally looked at my own parents and was like, wait a minute, they did not need this book. They were doing just fine. That's interesting. So, so your path to becoming a writer, you, you, you went to Kansas State University. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then some time at the New York Times, but talk to us about sort of the sort of where you got the writing bug and <laughs> and how you discovered that you had this 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 voice within you. Well, I was a lawyer in between those things, but I have always I've always always been a writer. I'm sure many of your guests say the same. But um, I wrote what you would have called fan fiction if I were um, if I were younger. It didn't, ex it didn't exist when I was, let's, let's just say MASH and Battlestar Galactica fan fiction were not things that you are not, as far as I know, things you find on the internet. So I had a pretty embarrassingly nerdy, uh, writery childhood. Went to college, thought about studying actual journalism, um, was daunted by the need to stick to the facts. <laughs> and, and then I became a lawyer. The story's going straight downhill. Um, yeah, so. And you were a prosecutor for New I York, was. In the city of New York, too. I was. I represented the people of the state of New York. And that was, it was a, a great job, but I didn't turn out to be a lifer. 
but it informs some of your later writing, and we'll get into that in a minute, but lessons that you learned there. So then Absolutely. You, so then you went to Slate, or you wrote for Slate? Uh, yes. Um, we moved out of New York a year after 9-11, uh, sort of picked up life and, and went to New Hampshire, and actually unrelated, and I was determined to start a freelance career. This was when you still put uh, articles in envelopes and put stamps on them and mailed them to yeah, places. Yeah, I remember those days. Exactly. And, uh, and, um, and got you know, your rejections back. And got your rejections back. <laughs> I know that story yeah. well, believe me. Yeah, but I, I think probably because of having the, the legal background, um, took it very professionally and, uh, you know, looked at what the magazines wanted and tailored what I was offering them to what they already had in there, spelled the editor's names right, got the word counts right, and I, I was pretty successful pretty quickly. Internet ramps up. Yeah, I joined um, Slate fairly early on and kind of took it from there. I went to the Times from Slate. And you wrote the Motherlode blog. What was that? The Motherlode blog. I remember blog. well, but some of our <laughs> audience may not. Yeah, the Motherlode blog was the Times' parenting section. Um, it, it started out as a, a, as a blog, and then it morphed into sort of um, hosting content from parenting blogs, which were a huge thing. This, that would have been 2008, 2000. Oh, now that's, that's too early, but about 2010, 2011. I took it over in 2013. Um, and then we started inviting in other voices uh, to write essays directly for us. We started to cover um, as much policy as personal stuff and, you know, really brought it from being about like the intimate stories of parenting to being about both the intimate stories and the sort of external societal factors that were affecting those stories. So obviously you get into issues of the family, but I yes. think early on with, with that blog, you realized, you already knew, but you made it very clear that the family had changed. I mean, sort of this Norman Rockwell image that some people had and may still have of what the family was or is of course, isn't really true at all. So was there one event that made you shift, make that shift to recognizing that there are foster families, that there are families with adopted children, including your including own, mine, so. including your own, that there are families with LBGT parents? Um, I, from the minute I took, well, first of all, one of my uh, missions after taking on, and it, took, and it took a long time to accomplish, was to change the name. Uh, Motherlode was really a funny name when it was named, and I love the people that named it. <laughs> kind and of a it was pun, meant it was meant to be a pun. It yeah, was the motherload right. of parenting information. But you know, we were really at a moment when fathers' voices needed to be heard, and we needed to be very, very, very emphatic in our um, explanation that we're not, you know, this is not a gendered, this is not a gendered thing, um, parenting. This is, uh, this is something that, you know, we, we all do. So that was part of the mission for me from, from day one. And it's now, um, it became Well Family and still exists as Well Family. And now the Times has a section just sim simply called Parenting. Pretty Put nice. Direct straight uh, yeah, you yeah. can, you can guess what that is, is <laughs> named after. But what I was going to say is, I had people um, talking to me constantly. I, my email box was always full. I had pitches for essays. And those pitches and the, the essays that I was reading 
were so broad, were so all over the map. Um, they, were, they were from uh, parents of kids who were identifying in different uh, gendered ways. They were from LGBTQ parents. They were certainly from dads. They were from you know, moms who were having different experiences. And then there was a point when I, I really looked at it all and went, oh wait, wait, what we're missing here is the kind of people who aren't gonna send me an essay. So then we started, a, we started a column we called, or a, a section um, that we called um, uh, how, how, how I Do It. And I reached out to um, parents who probably weren't going to send me an essay and asked them to tell me their story. So uh, it's not been parents living in the margins. Yeah, exactly. so I had a and great... And not necessarily even readers of the Times. Right, right. I yeah. had a great essay about the struggle to find public housing. Uh, another one from a mother who was dealing with getting her child back out of the foster care system. Um, things like that. And so helping to find and, and tell and those stories child was huge. took her first step in a homeless shelter. Yes, actually she ended up writing her own book about that. Really? Uh, yeah, Made, you might have heard of it. Um, Stephanie, oh it was huge last year, yeah, last year. It was one of the best books of last year. So, so, that, so that was a, sort of an amazing research opportunity, getting all these emails from people and, mm -hmm. and interviewing all these people. I mean, I'm thinking scholars might have killed. Parents. Yeah, <laughs> scholars would kill for that opportunity. So it, it gave you, you know, clearly a very informed view and, and ability to write your blog and your book, which we're going to get into well, momentarily. I'm, I'm curious, outside of, of your work, does popular culture depict parenthood accurately? I mean, what are the stories that we're telling ourselves and are they, are they well, valid? They're certainly told by a limited number of people, right? I mean, I'm the standard, I, I'm the, I am the standard uh, expression of modern parenthood. I am a white upper middle class woman. Um, and you see me talking about parenthood a lot. Um, you don't see the male version of me as often. You don't see the person of color version of me as often. You don't see um, the younger version of me, you know, the, per the person who, who had her, her kids maybe before college. You don't see that version as often. Um, and you don't hear those stories as much. So I think we're still missing an opportunity to hear um, more stories about what parenting is like. But on the other hand, I think we've lost, um, we don't tell the, the rose-colored glasses story as much as we used to. We're all pretty aware that uh, being a parent is, is a challenge, especially in a society where there's not a lot of societal, there's not a lot of um, policy support, shall we say, for parents who might like to do something like have a job at the same time, you know, because some kids like to eat. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some kids. Some. And a few of them also need housing. Yeah, the challenge to be uh, both the uh, caregiver and the breadwinner is, is a hard one. And I think we recognize that much more readily now than we used to. So your book has a number of uh, suppositions. One of them is from your own experience. When you became a parent, you soon enough realized that you were going to commit 20 plus years of your life to parenting, <laughs> as, as you're right, which is a long time, it needless is. to say. Do you think most parents, when they have their first child or are expecting their first child, planning their first child, have any clue really that you're looking at such a commitment of time? If we did, I, I don't know that we would sign up. <laughs> <laughs> so in other words, none I of us totally, would be here. <laughs> I totally remember at some point with toddlers hearing someone tell a story about their teenager and thinking, well, yeah, you shouldn't have had teenagers. 
Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Teenagers are a lot of trouble, baby. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's not optional, actually. They're going to they're gonna turn into that. I don't think we can possibly know what we're getting into. Same is true of have, uh, growing your family by adoption or growing your family by taking foster kids into it. You think it's going to be one thing, and um, it, it never is, no matter what it was that you thought it was going to be. Another conclusion or supposition is that the amount of stress involved in being a parent, that, that's again something that I don't think people going into it for the first time realize. And that comes not simply from your own experience, but from research. Talk a little bit about the research that backs that up, stress of modern, modern parenting. Right. Um, well, we jobs, already... I mean, you, you talked, not yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> we already talked about the, the many, many people that I interviewed as, in the course of, of working with the Times, but I also did some research. I, I worked with um, a professor at Fordham University. We pulled together a thousand representative parents of kids from, um, I, I think we went three to 15. I tried to make them... You know, reflect the population and just asked questions about uh, what in their parenting experience did make them happy and what didn't. And we definitely got uh, a lot, we, we got results that reflected a lot of stress out there. Um, and it's the stress of having kids in a time when um, the, the ladder is no longer quite so clear. I mean, a, a lot of us, you know, climbed a really obvious ladder of college, graduate school, career, whatever. Um, that's, that's not a clear path to success anymore. And it's also the stress of, of um, raising kids in a society that tends to kind of assume there's a parent at home and a parent in the workplace when for the vast, uh, for the majority of us at this point, there's not. Both parents are in the workplace. And actually, in a lot of families right now, there's only one parent, and that parent had better be on, in the workplace. Um, so there's a lot of different stressors playing into being a parent right now. We like to tell a funny story about how, oh, well, you're so stressed because you're helicoptering. But that's not really at the root of the challenges. You know, there's a lot going on that is actually really, you know, makes having a family right now difficult. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy at Salvary Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books, including the recently published Kid Number One. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is K.J. Delantonia, a writer whose work you may know as a reporter for the New York Times or as a blogger for the Times Motherlode blog or as a contributing editor to the Well Family section of the Times. We're talking to her today about parenting in this modern, stressed-out world in her new book, How to Be a Happier Parent, Raising a Family, Having a Life, and Loving Almost Every Minute. You can find KJ on Twitter at K-J-D-E-L-L-A-N-T-O-N-I-A. So, KJ, you know, I think as a, as a parent myself, the, the, the question that I have for you is, 
What is the secret to, to being a happy parent? I think the secret to being a happier parent is not to always put your kids first. I think that um, I, uh, my research, everything, I don't, just, I don't just think this. Kids who um, believe that they come first are actually pretty stressed out kids. I want you to imagine um, feeling as a child that your parents' happiness depended on you that your family's schedule depended on you, that everything, in fact, revolved around you. It sounds pretty good, but it actually, you know, it's giving kids uh, an improperly sort of inflated view of who they have to be in the world when really their job ought to be just to, um, you know, to, to be, be exploring, being kids, be, be playing around, not maybe be making some top team or, or you know, or hitting the violin really hard or any of the variety of other things that we sometimes do put on our kids. And then as, as parents, it's important for us to take a step back and sort of embrace our adult lives even after we have kids. Uh, a lot of people, once they have kids, so there's that, you know, there's that year-long period after you first have a baby, especially that first one, you really almost can't do anything. I mean, right. everything you do is accompanied in some way, shape, or form by this little screaming bundle. And if it's not with you, you have to know where it is at all times. <laughs> you, you know, there, there is no just sort of dropping it off at the... Uh, that's really... And I think that adjustment kind of messes with our heads. And then as the kids get older and we're able to gradually pull back in all of the people that we used to be and all of the things that we used to do and all of the um, you know, activities that we used to love, sometimes instead of going in, in that direction, we kind of go in the, you know, the, the, the more kid stuff direction and the kids become um, more of a focus than is healthy for either us or for them. So, uh, so this... I, you know, the sacrilege notwithstanding, this, this makes, seems to make eminent sense, but are there, but I think it's, it's hard it is for hard. parents to do that. And, and, and particularly it feels if you, very risky. Well, that's it, that you're somehow uh, uh, neglecting your child if right. you are not hovering. Yeah, right? no, what, so, what if, um, if I had only taken my child to the chess club when they were three, they could now be the chess champion and being admitted to all these fantastic universities right. and heading off into a glorious career in public service. And I destroyed all that by deciding to play tennis instead <laughs> with a limited budget that we had when the child was three. So, so, <laughs> so, let me just take, let me just take that. Like, I can take it down a math. It's route, funny because it's real, right? It's yes. funny because it's true. Do, do, but, but is, are there, are there, are there strategies, are there things that, practical things that parents can do to help them adopt that kind of mindset? Um, I think thinking about our own life paths is, is you know, I already said it's not useful in terms of, you know, you're going to graduate from school and you're going to get a job, and, and most of us, but the, the important thing is, I, um, I don't know you guys' history, but most of the adults that I know, while they followed that path up to a point, then promptly sort of dropped off it, as I did. You know, I, I did go to law school. I didn't end up as a lawyer. Um, most, many of the adults um, around us are in their second or third or fourth career, or they have a passion project, or they have, you know, they're fed by other things. They are not, they are not doing the thing that their parents enrolled them in at age three, or even at age five. Um, and another sort of just 
mindset strategy for thinking about it is a lot of this stuff that's available to our kids. First of all, a lot of it sounds super fun. I mean, I would love to have, you know, can, I, can I go to cartooning classes yeah, and then right. afterwards, could I maybe go do kai taekwondo and you guys could sit in the background and clap because that would be awesome, right? <laughs> and then you could drive me somewhere, probably stop, get some food. Where does the pressure to make the perfect child, and I'm sort of making that up, but not really, where does the pressure come to do that, to spend all of your time when parents need their own time? Oh, that's my, wife who, my wife who is in this field, her clients, it's advice she gives her clients all the time, parents, you need your own time. Where does the pressure come from to be there always with your kids, to make them take the taekwondo, to be there at the soccer game, to blah, 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 blah. To make your child perfect, but to be the perfect parent. Right. And if you right? don't do that, if, yeah. if God forbid on a Saturday morning you say, well, I'm not going to the soccer game, I'm going to have coffee and read the paper, you feel guilty. Where does that come from, it, this, it's, these pressures? It's, so I think it's a, it's a bunch of things. And um, one, of the, one of the things is the change in what we can expect from our, for our kids versus what our parents could expect for us. And you know, that's, the, that's the external thing. We do, we look at our kids and we look at their future and we're not sure what it looks like. Whereas I think that um, a lot of our parents looked at us, looked at our future and they expected it to kind of look like theirs. Now it didn't necessarily, but that was their expectation. Whereas we can see the world is dramatically changing. It's terrifying, it's really hard to know whether or not you're preparing your kid for it. That's one piece of it, but there's another piece of it. First of all, when it comes to all those activities, soccer, taekwondo, Suzuki violin, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> follow the money. People figured out that there were parents that were, would pay for extra, you know, extra batting cage time, extra hockey training time, extra violin lessons. And uh, you know, it's, a, it's not just a cottage industry, as, Youth sports is a $9 billion a year industry, and that figures, I think, seven years old. Um, wow. It's an industry. There's a parenting industrial complex that is sort of designed to scoop us up and feed us into stuff. And then there's that sort of question of, you know, spending the Saturday morning at home um, while your kid is playing soccer, which I so, so absolutely encourage happier parents to do. Um, it's hard when the people around you aren't doing it. Well, there's the peer pressure piece. Yeah. Right? There's no question about that. We could talk about <laughs> all of your chapters in your book, and we're not going to have time to do that. But I, I want to start with one. Screens are fun. Limiting them is not, which is the amount of time that adults, obviously, parents, but children of all ages spend in front of a screen. And, and you had one statistic where... Nine hours a day, teenagers spend in non, I think it was nine hours a day, in non-school related screen time. And screen time, of course, is the tablet or the right. TV. That might have been the, the parents, too. The cell phone. <laughs> is that good or bad? Or talk about that. Um, that's a lot of time. And that, that certainly is a is different from when we were growing up, when there were not so many screens. It's absolutely different. And that is also frightening. It's frightening to us as parents. It's frightening to us as a society. We've changed the way that we communicate and there's nothing more fundamental to humanity than the way that we talk to mm -hmm. each other and every time we change that whether we change it by adding the written word whether we change it by adding telephones whether we change it by adding tv and radio every time we change it we freak out um so we're we're in the process of freaking out <laughs> uh, i don't i i can't endorse you know, nine hours a day of, of non-homework screen time. So I'm, I am not doing that. But as a whole, 
um, when I look at uh, the kids, so I, first I, want, I just want to step back. When I look at screen time and kids, it kind of comes in two flavors. There's the screen time for kids for whose screens you control as a parent. That's basically zero to seven. If you're seven-year-olds in control of their own screen time, something, you, you need to pull that back. Like, you, it's time to fix that. Yeah. It's time to get that back. But there comes a point when they can work the remote or they have an iPad they consider right. their own or whatever. And um, I would say that probably ought to be more like 10 or 11, but that's a, such a moving target. Once they've got control of their own screen time, your job changes. Your job is not to put limits on them. Your job is not to control them. Your job is to teach them to control themselves. Yeah. It's a problem of their generation. It's something that they are going to have to figure out. It's something that we as parents can't, I mean, we can't say this is the right way to do this because among other things, um, that statistic about the number of hours people were spending on their screens outside of work, it's even worse for adults. Um, we don't know how to figure, you know, we don't, we don't yeah. know how to moderate our own screen time. So this is a, it's an ongoing conversation. Well, do it's kids a project. figure it out themselves? I, I think mean, they start You're to. giving them, you know, a fair amount of authority here. And in your experience, has been that they do figure it out. And I that they are aware that there are potential dangers. This is a national conversation. Our kids are having it amongst themselves, our teenagers especially. Uh, they're having it with their teachers. They're having it with their pediatricians and their counselors. They're having it with their colleges. They're having it in their philosophy class. Um, Which is know, all good. It's all good. Yeah, it's something that... We're all going to have to sort out, but I do think they're on it. We've got a, just a couple of minutes left here, and I wanted to make sure that we talk for a second about Hashtag M Writing, which is your podcast. Yes. So tell us about it. Uh, hashtag M Writing is our podcast about, I say this every week in the introduction, it's about writing all the things. We talk about writing fiction. We talk about uh, nonfiction. We talk about pitches and proposals. Really, it's a podcast about the business of writing and the challenges of sitting down and getting the work done. Um, I share the co-hosting chair with Jessica Leahy, who's a well-known um, uh, author of nonfiction, including the book The Gift of Failure, and with Serena Bowen, who is the USA Today best-selling indie author of over 30 romances. So we have sort of three very different perspectives on, on writing and you know, we have guests and we sit down every week and we just sort of figure out, all right, you know, what are we doing? How are we doing it? And what should we be doing next? It sounds great. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to check it out. We also need you to mention, or we can mention, <laughs> you have a novel coming out. I do. I'm, Talk about I'm that very briefly. Moving into career number six or something <laughs> like that. Uh, None of which your parents predicted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is my first novel. It is a family story. It's called The Chicken Sisters. It's a fun beach read about two uh, fried chicken shacks in a small town in Kansas run by two feuding families, three generations, and the reality TV show that bursts in to uh, save slash destroy them all. So um, why do you write? Why do I write? I, I write to tell stories. I write to tell um, because I've always just wanted to tell. I tell true stories and I help other people tell theirs. And I personally believe that fiction is a way to tell true stories. If a day goes by that you don't write, do you start to get a craving? Uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I, I tend to write. I'm always writing my head. It was James head, Thurber whose wife would look at him at a party and go, Thurber, stop writing! <laughs> it's a, it's a two-edged sword, that writing in your head. Believe me, I know it well. Well, we're glad you do, and we're glad you took some time to spend it with us. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. so much. The book is How to Be a Happier Parent. 
It's worth a read. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>